Hello, every loving one of you. You're listening to Digging Through with Jesse Alvarez. I haven't spoken to you from my heart in a while, so I thought, today I'll do that. I wrote a story, and miraculously, an editor got in touch with me and asked what I was up to on my novel. The novel is still very much a work in progress, and so rather than tax her with a clumsy chapter to read, I sent her the story I just finished. During the editing process, my editor suggested I read uh, short stories by Clarissa Spector for inspiration. And me, being the obsessive person that I am, I read as many stories as I could in a few days, and now the specter is present in my mind and in my heart. I just cannot let go of this woman. And um, I keep sort of turning to her because there's just something very familiar about not only her stories, but also her life and, and, and how she led it. Clarice died in 1977 on the eve of her 57th birthday. She died of a terminal ovarian cancer. Her writing style has been likened to Virginia Woolf, though according to her biographer, Benjamin Moser, uh, Benjamin uh, wrote an article in, that appears in the July 10th, 2015 issue of The New Yorker, he wrote that um, she did not enjoy being compared to Virginia Woolf because Woolf had given up. The terrible duty is to go to the end, the specter is quoted as saying. This is an excerpt from The Dinner by Clarice the Spectre. He came into the restaurant late. He had certainly just been occupied with very important business. He might have been around 60, was tall and corpulent, with white hair, bushy eyebrows, and powerful hands. On one finger, the ring of his might. He sat down, ample and solid. I lost sight of him, and while eating went back to observing, the slim woman in the hat, she was laughing with her mouth full, and her dark eyes sparkled. Just as I raised my fork to my mouth, I looked over at him. There he sat, with his eyes closed, chewing his bread vigorously and mechanically. Both fists clenched on the table. I kept eating and staring. The garçon was setting dishes on the tablecloth, but the old man kept his eyes shut. At one of the waiter's livelier gestures, he opened them so abruptly that this same movement was conveyed to his large hands and a fork dropped. The garçon whispered friendly words while stooping down to retrieve it. He didn't respond. 
because now awakened, he was suddenly turning his meat over, examining it vehemently, the tip of his tongue peeking out. He pressed on the steak with the back of his fork, nearly sniffed it, his mouth working in anticipation. He began slicing it with a gratuitously vigorous movement of his whole body. Soon after, he was lifting a bite into a certain level of his face, and, as if he had to snatch it in midair, gobbled it with a jerk of his head. I looked down at my plate. When I stared at him again, he was immersed in the full glory of his dinner, chewing with his mouth open, running his tongue over his teeth, his gaze fixed on the ceiling light. I was just about to slice my meat again when I saw him stop entirely, and as if he couldn't stand it any more. What? He quickly grabs his napkin and presses it against his eye sockets with his hairy hands. I paused, watchfully. His body was having trouble breathing. It was growing. He finally takes the napkin off his eyes and gazes numbly into the distance. He breathes while opening and shutting his eyelids excessively, wipes his eyes carefully, and slowly chews the remaining food in his mouth. A second later, however, he's recomposed and hardened. He spears a forkful of salad with his whole body and eats hunched over, his chin active, the oil moistening his lips. He breaks off for a second, wipes his eyes again, shakes his head briefly, and another forkful of lettuce with meat is snatched in midair. He says to the passing garçon, This isn't the wine I told you to bring. The very voice I'd been expecting of him. A voice that allows no possibility for rebuttal, by which I saw that no one could ever do anything for him, except obey. The garçon left, courteously holding the bottle. But now the old man freezes again as if his chest were constricted and obstructed. His violent power quakes, imprisoned. He waits until hunger seems to assault him, and he starts chewing hungrily again, frowning. I was the one eating slowly, slightly nauseated without knowing why, participating in I didn't know what. Suddenly, he's trembling all over, lifting the napkin to his eyes and pressing them with a brutality that transfixes me. I drop my fork on the plate with a certain decisiveness. I myself experiencing an unbearable tightness in my throat, furious, broken into submission. But the old man doesn't let the napkin linger on his eyes. This time, when he pulls it off unhurriedly, his pupils are extremely sweet and tired. And before he wipes his face, I've seen it. I've seen the tear. What strikes me most about that story is how one character objectifies another. The narrator watches a corpulent man eat a fine meal alone. The narrator notes the ring on the man's finger as being a symbol of might or, we can presume, strength, power. 
Perhaps it's a wedding ring or perhaps it's the type of ring one gets to represent or mark a big success in life. As the story continues, the surface descriptions become more anticipatory. The narrator is transfixed by the stranger's forceful actions and in doing so becomes a participant. Though the narrator is a diner, the act of eating becomes revolting. A steak is cut, but it never makes its way into the narrator's mouth. There's never a moment of connection between the observer and the object of interest. The two never make eye contact, though the intense attention of the narrator would make any other person aware. The corpulent man is unaffected by the attention. Another peculiar aspect of the story is that nothing is revealed through characterization. We know very little beyond the descriptions as interpreted by the narrator. We don't know who the narrator is or how they feel except for the anticipation and anxiety. The only detail that we get about the narrator comes near the end of the story as the narrator watches the corpulent man leave the restaurant. It is at this point that the reader learns the narrator is a man. It's true, there's no indication of gender at the beginning of the story, but as readers, we know the story is written by a woman. And using simplistic deduction, we assume the narrator is a woman as well. But reading the story with this assumption sets up a common dynamic that of a woman observing, perhaps admiring, a powerful man. Even though there is a sense of disgust in the observations, there are also moments of sympathy, of intrigue, even of attraction. At the moment where we learn the narrator is a man, the spell is broken. We are now in different terrain. It is no longer the story of a marginal woman observing the powerful man, but of a man feeling disgust, sympathy, intrigue, even attraction to another man. This power dynamic challenges our expectations. The assumption can be that the narrator is a younger man viewing his future self and not liking what he's seeing. Or perhaps it's an equally powerful man who sees this older, overweight version as a man pummeled by his power, weakened by it, suffering from it. The strength transforms into a form of defeat. By the end of the story, there is a clear declaration of rejection by the observer. He can't eat. He can't accept this form of masculinity. If what he sees is defeat, then he must deny it. Like most of the Spectre's short stories, this one ends strangely. She adds unexpected turns in her stories, particularly towards the end. And these can be playful yet powerful. Some stories are harder to read than others because her language can be cryptic. Her verb tenses can vary from one sentence to the next. Another story called daydream and drunkenness of a young lady, for instance, contracts time within the action of the story. The verb tenses do little to orient the reader. 
and it becomes clear that the effect is meant to mimic inebriation. But it's not just drunkenness that's being displayed. It's also the disorientation as experienced by an unhappy housewife who is taking a break from her daily duties. If you're curious, please buy Clarice the Spectre's Complete Stories, which is published by New Directions. The book is thick but surprisingly light to carry. If you write stories, I guarantee you will be inspired by this woman's tremendous writing style and audacity. The Spectre reminded me of other female artists who have worked on hammering out ideas by themselves, ideas about language and imagery without any critical attention. One woman who is perhaps more well-known than the Spectre is, is the sculptor Louise Bourgeois. The Museum of Modern Art in New York City is currently running an exhibit entitled Louise Bourgeois, an Unfolding Portrait. The exhibit features Bourgeois' prints, books, and creative process. She died in 2010 at the age of 89. There are several drawings on display, and these in particular give you a glimpse into this woman's fertile imagination. I was only familiar with Bourgeois' spider sculptures, which you can view at many museums, um, including Dia in Beacon, New York. I knew Bourgeois had lived a long life and was well connected to the art world, but I didn't know about the trajectory of her artistic career. Like most female artists of her generation, her work was mostly ignored. Bourgeois, in the early 1930s, studied math and philosophy at the Sorbonne. She began studying art after her mother's death in 1932. In Paris, she had a short career as an art dealer. There she met art historian Robert Goldwater, whom she married and relocated to New York City with in 1938. Once in New York, she continued her studies in art. She studied at the Art Students League, where she focused her attention on printmaking and painting. She had three children in four years. Throughout the 1940s and 50s, Bourgeois' husband introduced her to New York artists, critics, and dealers. One of her works was bought by the director of the Museum of Modern Art in 1953. After her husband's death in 1973, she began teaching at a number of schools, including the Pratt Institute, Brooklyn College, and Cooper Union. It was during this time she became a socialist and a feminist. Her work became more sexually explicit. Though she worked continuously for a number of decades, it was her retrospective at the Museum of Modern Art in 1982 that brought her critical and public acclaim. Louise Bourgeois, an unfolding portrait, will be at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City until January 28, 2018. If you're in New York, check it out. So there you are. Two extraordinary artists that I've become aware of, inspired by and continue to learn from. Before I end this podcast, I wanted to read an excerpt from an article about Louise Bourgeois by David Sal, which appeared this week in the New York Review of Books. The article is entitled, Outside the Inside. 
after we're done shaking our heads at what they had to endure. We project onto our long-lived women artists a mystique that's as old as history, that of the sorceress or the good witch. These women have a secret. We want them to tell us everything, but maybe they don't want to. If we can gain access to their magical workshop, squeezing through a narrow corridor to find the door, we might be privy to some important mysteries. The veils will be unwound, and finally, we will look life in the face and weep for all that was lost to get us here. In her long life, Louise Bourgeois experienced both extremes of the female artist's story, marginalization, even invincibility early on, and decades later, a fierce and passionate following by younger artists and curators. Her status was based on an independence from fashion and on calling attention to emotions that most people prefer to keep hidden. Shame, disgust, fear of abandonment, jealousy, anger, occasionally joy or wonder would surface like a break in the clouds. But Bourgeois was an artist, not a therapist. Her imagination was tied to forms and how to make them expressive. Her gift was to represent, hard to grasp feelings in ways that seem direct and unfiltered. Thank you for listening. This is Digging Through with Jesse Alvarez. I wish you all a good night, good loving, and flowers. Until next time.